Chapter 11 of Pitching in a Pinch by Christy Mathewson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 Jinxes and What They Mean to a Ball Player. A friend of mine, who took a different fork in the road when we left college from the one that I have followed, was walking down Broadway in New York with me one morning after I had joined the Giants, and we passed a cross-eyed man. I grabbed off my hat and spat in it. It was a new hat, too. "'What's the matter with you, Matty?' he asked, surprised. "'Spit in your hat quick, and kill that jinx,' I answered, not thinking for the minute, and he followed my example. I forgot to mention when I said he took another fork in the road that he had become a pitcher too, but of a different kind. He had turned out to be a sort of conversational pitcher, for he was a minister, and as luck would have it, on the morning we met that cross-eyed man he was wearing a silk hat. I was shocked, pained, and mortified when I saw what I had made him do. But he was the right sort, and wanted to go through with the thing according to the standards of the professional man with whom he happened to be at the time. "'What's the idea?' he asked as he replaced his hat. "'Worst jinx in the world to see a cross-eyed man,' I replied. "'But I hope I didn't hurt your silk hat,' I quickly apologized. "'Not at all. But how about these ball players who masticate the weed? Do they kill jinxes, too?' he wanted to know. And I had to admit that they were the main exterminators of the jinx. Then, he went on, I'm glad that the percentage of wearers of cross eyes is small. I have just looked into one of my favorite works for that word jinx, and found it not. My search was in Webster's Dictionary, but any ball player can give a definition of it with his hands tied behind him, that is, any one except Arley Latham, and with his hands bound he is deaf and dumb. A jinx is something which brings bad luck to a ball player, and the members of the profession have built up a series of lucky and unlucky omens that should be catalogued. And besides the common or garden variety of jinxes, many stars have a series of private or pet and trained ones that are more malignant in their forms than those which come out in the open. A jinx is the child of superstition, and ball players are among the most superstitious persons in the world notwithstanding all this conversation lately about educated men breaking into the game and paying no attention whatever to the good and bad omens. College men are coming into both the leagues, more of them each year, and they are doing their share to make the game better and the class of men higher, but they fall the hardest for the jinxes. And I don't know, as it is anything to be ashamed of at that. A really true, on-the-level, honest-to-Jiminy jinx can do all sorts of mean things to a professional ball player. I have seen it make a bad pitcher out of a good one, and a blind batter out of a three-hundred hitter, and I have seen it make a ball club composed of educated men carry a Kansas farmer with two or three screws rattling loose in his dome around the circuit, because he came as a prophet and said that he was accompanied by Miss Fickle Fortune, and that is almost a jinx record. Jinx and Miss Fickle Fortune never go around together and ball players are always trying to kill this jinx, for once he joins the club, all hope is gone. He dies hard, and many a good hat has been ruined in an effort to destroy him. As I have said before, because the wearer happened to be chewing tobacco when the jinx dropped around. But what's a new hat against a losing streak or a batting slump? Luck is a combination of confidence and getting the breaks. Ball players get no breaks without confidence in themselves, and lucky omens inspire this confidence. On the other hand, unlucky signs take it away. 
The lucky man is the one who hits the nail on the head and not his fingers, and the ability to swat the nail on its receptive end is a combination of self-confidence and an aptitude for hammering. Good ball playing is the combination of self-confidence and the ability to play. The next is Red Ames, although designated as Leon by his family when a very small boy before he began to play ball. He is still called Leon in the winter. Ames is of Warren, Ohio, and the Giants, and he is said to hold the marathon record for being the most unlucky pitcher that ever lived, and I agree with the Sayers. For several seasons, Ames couldn't seem to win a ball game, no matter how well he pitched. In 1909, Red twirled a game on the opening day of the season against Brooklyn that was the work of a master. For nine innings, he held his opponents hitless, only to have them win in the 13th. Time and again, Ames has pitched brilliantly, to be finally beaten by a small score, because one of the men behind him made an error at a critical moment, or because the team could not give him any runs by which to win. No wonder the newspapers began to speak of Ames as the hoodoo pitcher and the man who couldn't win. There was a cross-eyed fellow who lived between Ames and the polo grounds, and Red used to make a detour of several blocks en route to the park to be sure to miss him in case he should be out walking. But one day in 1911, when it was his turn to pitch, he bumped into that cross-eyed man, and, in spite of the fact that he did his duty by his hat and got three or four small boys to help him out, he failed to last two innings. When it came time to go west on the final trip of the 1911 season, Ames was badly discouraged. "'I don't see any use in taking me along, Mac,' he said to McGraw a few days before we left. "'The club can't win with me pitching if the other guys don't even get a foul.' The first stop was in Boston, and on the day we arrived it rained. In the mail that day, addressed to Leon Ames, came a necktie and a four-leaf clover from a prominent actress wishing Ames good luck. The directions were inside the envelope. The four-leaf clover, if the charm were to work, must be worn on both the uniform and street clothes, and the necktie was to be worn with the street clothes and concealed in the uniform, if that necktie could be concealed anywhere. It would have done for a headlight and made Joseph's coat of many colors look like a mourning garment. "'Might as well wish good luck to a guy on the way to the morgue,' murmured Ames, as he surveyed the layout. But he manfully put on the necktie, taking his first dose of the prescription, as directed, at once, and he tucked the four-leaf clover away carefully in his wallet. "'You've got your work cut out for you, old boy,' he remarked to the charm as he put it away. "'But I'd wear you if you were a horseshoe.' The first day that Ames pitched in Boston he won, and won in a stroll." The necktie, he explained that night at dinner, and pointed to the three-sheet colored supplement affair he was wearing around his collar. I don't change her until I lose. And he didn't lose a game on that trip. Once he almost did, when he was taken out in the sixth inning, and a batter put in for him. But the Giants finally pulled out the victory, and he got the credit for it. He swept through the West unbeatable, letting down Pittsburgh with two or three hits, cleaning up in St. Louis, and finally breaking our losing streak in Chicago after two games had gone against us. And all the time he wore that spectrum around his collar for a necktie. As it frayed with the wear and tear, more colors began to show, although I didn't think it possible. If he had had occasion to put on his evening clothes, I believe that tie would have gone with it. For my part, I would almost rather have lost a game and changed the necktie, since it gave one the feeling all the time that he was carrying it around with him because he had had the wrong end of an election bet, or something of the sort. 
but not Ames. He was a game guy. He stuck with the necktie, and it stuck with him, and the combination kept right on winning ball games. Maybe he didn't mind it because he could not see it himself, unless he looked in a mirror. But it was rough on the rest of the team, except that we needed the games the necktie won to take the pennant. Columns were printed in the newspapers about that necktie, and it became the most famous scarf in the world. Ames used to sleep with it under his pillow alongside of his bankroll, and he didn't lose another game until the very end of the season, when he dropped one against Brooklyn. I don't hardly lay that up against the tie, he said afterwards. You see, Mac put all those youngsters into it, and I didn't get any support. Analyzing is a distasteful pastime to me, but let's see what it was that made Ames win. Was it the necktie? Perhaps not but some sliver of confidence, which resulted from that first game when he was dressed up in the scarf and the four-leaf clover, got stuck in his mind, and after that the rest was easy. Frank Chance, the manager of the Cubs, has a funny superstition which is of the personal sort. Most ball players have a natural prejudice against the number 13 in any form, but particularly when attached to a Pullman berth. But Chance always insists, whenever possible, that he have lower 13, he says that if he can just crawl in under that number, he is sure of a good night's rest, a safe journey, and a victory the next day. He has been in two or three minor railroad accidents, and he declares that all these occurred when he was sleeping on some other shelf besides lower thirteen. He can usually satisfy his hobby, too, for most travelers steer clear of the berth. McGraw believes a stateroom brings him good luck, or at least he always insists on having one when he can get it. Chance can have lower thirteen, says Mac, but give me a stateroom for luck. Most ball players nowadays treat the superstitions of the game as jokes, probably because they are a little ashamed to acknowledge their weaknesses, but away down underneath they observe the proprieties of the ritual. Why, even I won't warm up with the third baseman while I am waiting for the catcher to get on his mask and the rest of his paraphernalia. Once, when I first broke in with the Giants, I warmed up with the third baseman between innings, and in the next round they hit me hard and knocked me out of the box. Since then, I have had an uncommon prejudice against the practice, and I hate to hear a man even mention it. Devlin knows of my weakness, and never suggests it when he is playing the bag, but occasionally a new performer will drill into the box score at third base and yell, Come on, Matty, warm up here while you're waiting. It gets me. I'll pitch to the first baseman or a substitute catcher to keep warm, but I would rather freeze to death than heat up with the third baseman. That is one of my pet jinxes. And speaking of Arthur Devlin, he has a few hand-raised jinxes of his own, too. For instance, he never likes to hear a player hum a tune on the bench, because he thinks it will keep him from getting a base hit. He nearly beat a youngster to death one day when he kept on humming after Devlin had told him to stop. "'Cut that out, Caruso!' yelled Arthur as the recruit started his melody. "'You are killing base hits!' The busher continued with his air until Devlin tried another form of persuasion. Arthur also has a favorite seat on the bench which he believes is luckier than the rest, and he insists on sitting in just that one place. But the worst blow Devlin ever had was when some young lady admirer of his in his palmy days, who unfortunately wore her eyes crossed, insisted on sitting behind third base for each game, so as to be near him. Arthur noticed her one day, and after that it was all off. He hit the worst slump of his career. For a while no one understood it, but at last he confessed to McGraw. Mac, he said one night in the clubhouse, it's that jinx. 
Have you noticed her? She sits behind the bag every day, and she has got me going. She has sure slid the casters under me. I wish we could bar her out, or poison her, or shoot her, or chloroform her, or kill her in some nice mild way, because if it isn't done, this league is going to lose a ball player. How can you expect a guy to play with that overlooking him every afternoon? McGraw took Devlin out of the game for a time after that, and the newspapers printed several yards about the cross-eyed jinx who had ruined the Giants' third baseman. With the infield weakened by the loss of Devlin, the club began to lose with great regularity. But one day the jinxess was missing, and she never came back. She must have read in the newspapers what she was doing to Devlin, her hero, and quit the national pastime or moved to another part of the stand. With this weight off his shoulders, Arthur went back into the game and played like mad. If she'd stuck much longer, declared McGraw, joyous in his rejuvenated third baseman, I would have had her eyes operated on and straightened. This club couldn't afford to keep on losing ball games because you are such a Romeo, Arthur, that even the cross-eyed ones fall for you. Ball players are very superstitious about the bats. Did you ever notice how the clubs are all laid out in a neat, even row before the bench and are scrupulously kept that way by the bat boy? If one of the sticks by any chance gets crossed, all the players will shout, Uncross the bats! Uncross the bats! It's as bad as discovering a three-alarm fire in an Excelsior factory. Don't believe it? Then listen to what happened to the Giants once because a careless bat boy neglected his duty. The team was playing in Cincinnati in the season of 1906 when one of the bats got crossed through the carelessness of the boy. What was the result? Mike Donlin, the star slugger of the team, slid into third base and came up with a broken ankle. Ever since that time, we have carried our own boy with us because a club with championship aspirations cannot afford to take a chance with those foreign artists handling the bats. They are likely to throw you down at any time. The athletics have a funny superstition which is private or confined to their team as far as I know. When luck seems to be breaking against them in a game, they will take the bats and throw them wildly into the air and let them lie around in front of their bench, topsy-turvy. They call this changing the luck, but any other club would consider that it was the worst kind of a jinx. It is the same theory that card players have about shuffling the deck vigorously to bring a different run of fortune. Then, if the luck changes, the athletics throw the bats around some more to keep it. This act nearly cost them one of their best ball players in the third game of the 1911 World Series. The Philadelphia players had tossed their bats to break their run of luck, for the score was one to nothing against them when Baker came up in the ninth inning. He cracked his now famous home run into the right field bleachers, and the men on the bench hurled their bats wildly into the air. In jumping up and reaching for a bat to throw, Jack Barry, the shortstop, hit his head on the concrete roof of the structure and was stunned for a minute. He said that little black specks were floating in front of his eyes, but he gamely insisted on playing the contest out. Connie Mack was so worried over his condition that he sent Ira Thomas out on the field to inquire if he were all right, and this interrupted the game in the ninth inning. A lot of the spectators thought that Thomas was out there bearing some secret message from Connie Mack. None knew that he was ascertaining the health of a player who had almost killed himself while killing a jinx. The athletics for two seasons have carried with them on all their trips a combination bat boy and mascot who was a hunchback, and he outjinxed our champion jinx killer, Charlie Faust, in the 1911 World Series. A hunchback is regarded by ball players as the best luck in the world. 
If a man can just touch that hump on the way to the plate, he is sure to get a hit, and any observant spectator will notice the athletics hitters rubbing the hunchback boy before leaving the bench. So attached to this boy have the players become that they voted him half a share of the prize money last year after the World Series. Lots of ball players would tell you that he deserved it, because he has won two world's pennants for them. Another great piece of luck is for a ball player to rub a colored kid's head. I've walked along the street with ball players and seen them stop a young negro and take off his hat and run their hands through his kinky hair. Then I've seen the same ball player go out and get two or three hits that afternoon and play the game of his life. Again, it is the confidence inspired, coupled with the ability. Another old superstition among ball players is that a load of empty barrels means base hits. If an athlete can just pass a flock of them on the way to the park, he is sure to step right along stride for stride with the 300 hitters that afternoon. McGraw once broke a batting slump of the Giants with a load of empty barrels. That is why I maintain he is the greatest manager of them all. He takes advantage of the little things, even the superstitions of his men, and turns them to his account. He played this trick in one of the first years that he managed the New York club. The batting of all the players had slumped at the same time. None could hit, and the club was losing game after game as a result, because the easiest pitchers were making the best batters look foolish. One day Bowerman came into the clubhouse with a smile on his face for the first time in a week. "'Saw a big load of empty barrels this afternoon, boys,' he announced, "'and just watch me pickle the pill out there today.' Right at that point McGraw got an idea, as he frequently does. Bowerman went out that afternoon and made four hits out of a possible five. The next day, three or more of the players came into the park, carrying smiles and the announcement that fortunately they, too, had met a load of empty barrels. They then all went out and regained their old batting strides, and we won that afternoon for the first time in a week. Moore saw a load of barrels the next day and started to bat. At last, all the members of the team had met the barrels, and men with averages of 119 were threatening to chisel into the 300 set. With remarkable regularity, the players were meeting loads of empty barrels on their way to the park, and with remarkable regularity and a great deal of expedition, the pitchers of opposing clubs were being driven to the shower bath. Say, asked Billy Gilbert, the old second baseman, of Billy Lauder, formerly the protector of the third corner, one day, is one of that team of horses sorrel and the other white? Sure, answered Bill. Sure, echoed McGraw. I hired that load of empty barrels by the week to drive around and meet you fellows on the way to the park. And you don't think I can afford to have them change horses every day, do you? Everybody had a good laugh and kept on swatting. McGraw asked for favors on the load of empty barrels soon afterwards, but his scheme had stopped a batting slump and put the club's hitters on their feet again. He plays to the little personal qualities and superstitions in the men to get the most out of them. And just seeing those barrels gave him the idea that they were bound to get the base hits, and they got them. Once more, the old confidence hitched up with ability. What manager would have carried a Kansas farmer around the circuit with him besides McGraw? I refer to Charles Victor Faust of Marion, Kansas, the most famous jinx killer of them all. Faust first met the Giants in St. Louis, on the next to the last trip the club made west in the season of 1911, when he wandered into the Planters Hotel one day, asked for McGraw, and announced that a fortune teller of Marion had informed him he would be the great pitcher and that for five dollars he could have a full reading. This pitching announcement piqued Charles 
and he reached down into his jeans, dug out his last five, and passed it over. The fortune-teller informed Faust that all he had to do to get into the headlines of the newspapers, and to be a great pitcher, was to join the New York Giants. He joined, and after he once joined, it would have taken the McNamaras in their best form to separate him from the said Giants. Charlie came out to the ballpark, and announced himself warming up. Incidentally, the Giants did not lose a game while he was in the neighborhood. The night the club left for Chicago on that trip, he was down at the Union Station, ready to go along. "'Did you get your contract and transportation?' asked McGraw, as the lanky Kansan appeared. "'No,' answered Charlie. "'Pshaw!' replied McGraw. "'I left it for you with the clerk at the hotel. The train leaves in two minutes,' he continued, glancing at his watch. "'If you can run the way you say you can, you can make it and be back in time to catch it.' It was the last we saw of Charlie Faust for a time, galloping up the platform in his angular way with that contract and transportation in sight. "'I'm almost sorry we left him,' remarked McGraw as Charlie disappeared in the crowd. We played on around the circuit with indifferent luck, and got back to New York with the pennant no more than a possibility, and rather a remote one at that. The first day we were in New York, Charlie Faust entered the clubhouse with several inches of dust and mud caked on him, for he had come all the way, either by side-door special or blind baggage. "'I'm here all right,' he announced quietly, and started to climb into a uniform. "'I see you are,' answered McGraw. Charlie stuck around for two or three days, and we won. Then McGraw decided he would have to be dropped, and ordered the man on the door of the clubhouse to bar this Kansas kid out. Faust broke down and cried that day, and we lost. After that, he became a member of the club and we won game after game until some busy newspaper man obtained a vaudeville engagement for him at a salary of a hundred dollars a week. We lost three games the week he was absent from the grounds, and Faust saw at once he was not doing the right thing by the club, so, with a wave of his hand that would have gone with J.P. Morgan's income, he passed up some lucrative vaudeville contracts, much to the disgust of the newspaper man, who was cutting the remuneration with him, and settled down to business. The club did not lose a game after that, and it was decided to take Faust West with us on the last and famous trip in 1911. Daily he had been bothering McGraw and Mr. Brush for a contract, for he wanted a pitch. The club paid him some money from time to time to meet his personal expenses. The Sunday night the club left for Boston, a vaudeville agent was at the Grand Central Station with a contract, offering Faust a hundred dollars a week for five weeks, which Charlie refused in order to stick with the club. It was the greatest trip away from home in the history of baseball. Starting with the pennant almost out of reach, the Giants won 18 and lost four games. One contest that we dropped in St. Louis was when some of the newspaper correspondents on the trip kidnapped Faust and sat him on the St. Louis bench. Another day in St. Louis, the game had gone 11 innings and the Cardinals needed one run to win. They had several incipient scores on the bases, and Rube Marquard, in the box, was apparently going up in the air. Only one was out. Faust was warming up far in the suburbs when, under orders from McGraw, I ran out and sent him to the bench, for that was the place from which his charm seemed to be the most potent. Charlie came loping to the bench as fast as his long legs would transport him, and St. Louis didn't score, and we won the game. It was as nice a piece of pinch mascotting as I ever saw. The first two games that Charlie really lost were in Chicago, and all through the trip he reiterated his weird prophecies that the Giants with manager McGraw were going to win. The players believed in him, 
and none would have let him go if it had been necessary to support him out of their own pockets. And we did win. Charlie, with his monologue and great good humor, kept the players in high spirits throughout the journey, and the feeling prevailed that we couldn't lose with him along. He was advertised all over the circuit, and spectators were going to the ballpark to see Faust and Wagner. Charlie admitted that he could fan out hands because he had learned how to pitch out there in Kansas by correspondence school, and had read of Hans's weakness in a book. His one groove was massages and manicures. He would go into the barber shop with any member of the team who happened to be getting shaved, and take a massage and manicure for the purposes of sociability, as a man takes a drink. He easily was the record holder for the manicure marathon, hanging up the figures of five in one day in St. Louis. He also liked pie for breakfast, dinner and supper, and a small half before retiring. But alas, Charlie lost in the World's Series. He couldn't make good, and a jinx killer never comes back. He is gone, and his expansive smile and bump-the-bumps slide are gone with him. That is, McGraw hopes he is gone, but he was a wonder while he had it, and he did a great deal toward giving the players confidence. With him on the bench, they thought they couldn't lose, and they couldn't. It has long been a superstition among ball players that when a bug joins a club, it will win a championship, and the Giants believed it when Charlie Faust arrived. Did Charlie Faust win the championship for the Giants? Another time-honored superstition among ball players is that no one must say to the pitcher as he goes to the box for the eighth inning, Come on now, only six more men, or for the ninth, Pitch hard now, only three left because McGraw forgot himself, and urged him to pitch hard, because only three remained to be put out. Those three batters raised the mischief with Ames's prospects. He was knocked out of the box in that last inning, and we lost the game. That was before the days of the wonder necktie. Ames won the third game played in Chicago on the last trip west. Coming into the ninth inning, he had the Cubs beaten when McGraw began, Come on, Red, only... Nick Smack, cut in Ames, for the love of Mike, be reasonable. And then he won the game. But the chances are that if McGraw had got that only three more out, he would have lost because it would have been working on his strained nerves. End of chapter 11